right. Good to see everybody today. We've got a good crowd here on this Easter Sunday. You know, I know there's several of you that are here from out of town, and uh, you're here just to celebrate Easter with family. Um, but there's another good group of you here that are, are from this area, but you're here because it's Easter, and normally you don't come to church except for Easter. So I want to personally invite you to come back next week, okay? Um, there is something that God is doing in this church body right now that is really exciting. Those who are here are just, uh, it's just a privilege to be a part of. It's not because of us. It's just because God is, there's just crazy things that he does sometimes. And despite broken and messed up and, uh, just people that don't have it all together, God just chooses to do some neat things in and among and that's what he's doing here. So if you only come on Christmas and Easter or just Easter, uh, I just want to invite you to break that um, uh, rut, if you will, and come next week too, because I think you'll find something good. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, open up to John chapter 18. For the last month or so, we've been in the last part of the Gospel of John. We started with Jesus washing his disciples' feet in the upper room, and went all the way through to last week looking at Peter's three denials about being a follower of Jesus right in the middle of Jesus' first trial. And today we're going to pick up from there and go all the way through to the resurrection. So John chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 28. If you would stand with me this morning as we read the word of the Lord. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium, so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. To fulfill the word of which Jesus spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? Let's pray. God, I pray that by your spirit right now, Lord, you would open our eyes to see the truth that Pilate was confused about, the truth that was embodied in Jesus Christ. Lord, let us see it this morning, that you may be glorified, that we may be changed for your glory. God, break whatever religious routine that may be going on, and God, let us know that we had an encounter with you. Lord, I pray that this is a defining moment in someone's life, a life-changing encounter with you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
for the first part of this message, we're going to spend some time looking at the trials that Jesus went through that horrendous and glorious night. There were actually six separate trials that he went through, three Jewish and three Roman, when you put all four accounts of the Gospels together. And it's pretty appalling what happened when you look at it up close. Now, the people who hated Jesus the most were, of course, the religious leaders, which is ironic because they were the ones who were experts in the Old Testament scriptures, yet they couldn't see that Jesus was who the Old Testament had always been about. He was the complete fulfillment of the Old Testament law. He was the greater Adam, the better Noah, the wiser judge, the ultimate prophet, and the final king. And it was the religious leaders, the one who were so pious and devoted to God, who could not see that God himself was standing before them in the flesh. And the reason why they hated him so much is because they saw Jesus as a threat to their own power and control in the culture. As we learned last week, they were the elites of society. And they couldn't see Jesus for who he was because they were so blinded by their own greed and their intense desire to build and maintain their own kingdoms. All they could see was a huge threat that needed to be eliminated for good. It's also ironic because for being such such sticklers about obeying every letter of the law, they broke a whole slew of them in order to convict Jesus. Even though Israel was under Roman control, they were allowed to conduct criminal trials according to their own religious law. But they could only go so far. They were not allowed to pass down a death sentence on anyone. If anyone in a Jewish court was convicted of a capital crime, it then had to go to the Roman court. And only the Roman governor, who was Pilate at this time, could hand down a death sentence. All of the Jewish court proceedings carried out a very strict code of rules. And those rules were contained in a document called the Talmud, which was a 6,200-page document that serves as the basis of all Jewish codes of law. And looking at Jesus' trials, it seems like these laws were completely disregarded. And I want to show you just how many laws were broken and how completely illegal all these trials were that Jesus went through. The first law they broke was when Jesus was arrested because a person who was accused of a capital crime could not be arrested at night. They had to be arrested during the daytime, but Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane happened around 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning in the dead of night. Also, if someone was accused of a capital crime... No one involved in the the arrest of that individual could be associated with him at all. Neither could his arrest be made solely on the information from someone who was a colleague or follower of the accused because they figured if the accused person was a criminal, then those who he was associated with would be too, and their testimony couldn't be relied upon. But this entire plot centered around Judas, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And one of the rules that governed the way the court proceedings were to uh, be done in the Jewish court was this, and this is a direct quote from the Talmud. 
It says the members of the court may not alertly and intelligently hear the testimony against the accused during the hours of darkness. But Jesus' first two trials before Annas and Caiaphas were at night when it was dark. Another rule they broke was that no decision could be immediately rendered after hearing the testimony. All members of the court had to go home and sleep on their decision before they made a vote. Here's how the Talmud states it. It says, eat like food, drink like wine, sleep well. And once again, return and hear the testimony of the accused. Then and only then, you shall render a vote. But they didn't do that with Jesus. The court never left his presence between the time of his, execu- uh, his arrest and his execution. Now, when members of the court did vote on a verdict, there were specific rules that govern how that was done. There was no all in favor, say aye, or anything like that. They had to each individually cast a vote, beginning with the youngest member going up to the oldest, so that the younger members wouldn't be influenced by the vote of the older members. But this never happened in any of Jesus' trials. A defendant was never forced to testify on his own behalf. If he wanted to remain completely silent throughout the whole deal, he could, he could do that. Um, they had to take testimony of witnesses in order to verify the accusations that were being brought. But when Jesus went before Caiaphas, he was asked directly to answer the accusations that were being brought against him. Jesus knew what these rules were. And so in verse 21 of chapter 18, he said, Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. And when Jesus said this, the Bible says that one of the officers of the court struck him in the face, which was also not allowed during court. And then finally, after they had taken their case as far as they could, they brought Jesus before Pilate, the Roman governor, And to Pilate, they brought a charge that didn't come up in any of the Jewish court proceedings. See, in the Jewish court, Jesus was accused of blasphemy, which according to Old Testament law was punishable by stoning the person to death. But like I said, they couldn't carry out a death sentence. The Romans had to do that. They knew that Pilate was not going to kill Jesus for doing something against their Jewish religion. And so they came up with an accusation that would be of more interest to Pilate. And so instead of accusing him before Pilate of blasphemy, they told Pilate that he was guilty of treason against the Roman government. And so everything about Jesus' trial from the very beginning, from his arrest all the way to the execution, was completely illegal. And this just showed that the religious leaders really weren't concerned at all about honoring God's law. All they cared about was their own position and power and that they would do anything in order to preserve it. Now to say Jesus' trials weren't fair would be a huge understatement. And it wasn't just not fair, it was completely illegal. I mean, if there had been an appeal system in place, his conviction would have been thrown out in a heartbeat. But there was no appeal. I don't know if there has ever been a man in history involved in a more unfair trial than what Jesus went through. Now, the reason why I'm pointing all this out this morning is this. Fairness is something that we place a lot of value on 
in our culture today. And every time you turn on the TV or read the news on the internet, you hear of one group bemoaning the unfairness being done to it by another group. More and more laws are being passed by our government in order to make life more fair for everyone. They talk all the time about the need for the rich to pay their what? Fair share. The redistribution of wealth is in reality just government-sanctioned theft, all in the name of making things fair. This whole promotion of fairness isn't just limited to the government. After all, a dem- any democratic government is just a reflection of the people. This attitude permeates our entire culture. Ever since my kids started playing sports, I've been involved in coaching each one of them at one time or another. And the attitudes that I've been seeing, not just in the kids, but even more so in the parents, is downright depressing. I mean, I remember a time, and I'm sure many of you do too, when kids had to actually try out to make a team. And if they weren't good enough, they weren't on the team. If a kid was good enough to make the team, but wasn't good enough to start, he sat on the bench. And nobody saw any of this as being unfair. Everyone understood that you had to earn what you got, that nothing was just going to be given to you automatically, and that nobody had a right to whatever they wanted. My, how times have changed, because that is definitely not the case anymore. I've seen kids throwing fits for not wanting to do what the coach tells them, and parents throwing bigger fits because their little angel wasn't getting as much playing time as somebody else on the team. And why should they play more? Because apparently it's not fair that some kids get to play more on the team than others do. It may hurt their feelings. But parents, if that's you, you need to hear something. I promise you a whole lot more than their feelings is going to be hurt later on in life if they don't learn that they have to work for and earn whatever it is they want and don't have, that nothing is just going to be given to them and they don't deserve anything. You see, some... Somehow we have got in our minds that life has to be fair. I mean, you think that our Constitution says that everyone has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of fairness rather than happiness. Somehow we have gotten to the place where we think that fairness is a value that we should do everything within our power to try to achieve. And if something is deemed not fair, then we should fight against such grave injustices. Tell you what, this demand for fairness is nothing but a selfish byproduct of an entitlement mentality. We get so full of ourselves and we think that we are entitled to everything that we want. And if we don't have it, then it's not fair. I'll tell you what, the phrase, that's not fair, is a phrase that is not allowed in my household. My kids can get in more trouble saying that's not fair than they can saying a bad word a lot of times. Because I want them to understand while they're young that life isn't supposed to be fair. 
it's going to be unfair and that we deal with whatever comes at us. I mean, it's gotten so bad that here, again, is another example of the culture affecting the church rather than the church affecting culture. It seems that many people have bought into this assumption that God's purpose is to make life fair. But if that's what you believe, think about this. If Jesus came to make life fair, then he was an absolute failure. He failed big time. Because it doesn't take a scar to look around and see that the world isn't fair. It's not fair that bad things happen to good people. It's not fair that a parent would have to bury their own child. It's not fair that one person lives with a handicap their whole life while others live in perfect health. It's not fair that children are abused. It's not fair that those who deserve it the least seem to be promoted the most. And we could go on and on with things that just aren't fair. They surround us everywhere we go. And if God exists in order to make life fair, then Jesus serves as the poster child for the colossal failure of God. I mean, his trials, both Jewish and Roman, were anything but fair. It wasn't fair that someone who never knew one ounce of sin was nailed to a cross to bake in the sun to die as a criminal of the highest offense. It wasn't fair that he absorbed the wrath of God for sin that he didn't commit. It wasn't fair that he paid the debt that we owed. And it wasn't fair that he died the death that we deserved for our sin against a holy God. And as he lay in that tomb, his followers were no doubt consumed by the despair of the injustice done and the defilement of all that is fair. And I'm sure that they probably had thoughts like, this is not fair. I've spent three years of my life following this man and now he's gone. Three years of my life was given to a cause that is over now. It's gone. What was it all worth? This is not fair. Listen, folks, nowhere in God's word does it say that life is supposed to be fair for you. Nowhere does he promise that he's going to do everything he can to make sure you get a fair deal in this world. Nowhere. And so it's not right to get mad at God for not keeping promises that he never made. This world is unfair. God's purpose is not to make things fair. Look, God doesn't owe anyone a thing. Nothing. Not even the air in your lungs. That has been gifted to you by his grace and his mercy. We don't deserve anything. Jesus didn't rail against the unfairness that was being done to him. On the contrary, he willingly gave himself over to it. But the good news of the gospel doesn't stop at the unfairness of the cross. Turn over to John chapter 20. Mary Magdalene has gone to Jesus' tomb and she found that the tomb that had sealed the entrance had been moved and Jesus' body was gone. So she runs off and she gets 
Peter and John, and they come and see for it themselves, and then they run off to tell the rest. We'll pick up in verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to the Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Next point. Jesus didn't come to make life fair. He came to give it meaning. He came to set us free from the bondage of sin, to save us from the flames of hell, to heal us from the sickness of our soul, to remove us from the cover of our shame and to restore us to relationship with the Father. He didn't come to make life fair. He came for something far better. The resurrection of Jesus was an exclamation point of his successfully completed mission. And it signified not that life was now going to be fair from now on, but that Jesus was who he said he was, and he did what he, came, what he said he came to do. And it was the coronation of his kingdom established on earth. And those who put their trust in him as the only way to be made right with God, we are brought into and made members of this kingdom. We no longer belong to the kingdoms of the world with all of its unfairness and injustice. We belong to something better. I want to go back to what Jesus said to Pilate in verse 36 of the text that we started off with. He said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. If his kingdom was of this world, his disciples would have fought against all the injustice and unfairness that was being done to him. Jesus would not have stood there and took all that was being done to him. He took all the unfairness without one complaint. Because he wasn't concerned about the Jewish kingdom or the Roman kingdom or any other kingdom on earth. Jesus was concerned about something better. You know, if you go to any foreign country in the world, one of the first things you're going to realize is that things are done different there. The people of that country have a different language, different customs, different ways of doing pretty much everything that we do here in the United States. But do we complain about it and demand that they change their ways? Do we shake our fist at God and ask how dare he allow all these differences to happen 
these different ways? Do we demand that those people drive on the right side of the road and shake hands instead of bowing or speak a language that we can understand? No, we don't. And the reason is because we know that we don't belong to that country. We accept the fact that that's the way things operate in that country. And we're really not affected by that because we're just passing through. We don't belong. And the truth is, if we belong to the kingdom of God, we're also just passing through all the kingdoms of this world. When the world operates the way a broken world operates, we don't need to get bent out of shape about it and shake our fists at God. The world is unfair because it's broken. That's the way it operates. The next point, those who are in Christ don't belong to this world. We belong to something better. In this world, you're going to be treated unfairly. But in the kingdom of God, you have been made sons and daughters of the Most High. In this world, you may be discriminated against, ostracized, and placed into categories that are not as good as others. But in the kingdom of God, there is no distinction between race, gender, ethnicity, or economic status. We have all been made equal in Christ In this world, you're going to have to earn whatever you don't have but want. Nothing is just going to be handed to you. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus has earned for you all that you could never earn yourself. In this world, people will love you and accept you only until you say or do something that they don't like. In the kingdom of God, his love is everlasting and unconditional. In this world, death is the ultimate end of all things. In the kingdom of God, death is just transition from one state of existence to another more glorious one. The resurrection of Jesus proves that not even death itself in this world can thwart God's purposes for his kingdom. You know, there's a saying that's often thrown around in church, and I'm sure you've heard before. It says, don't be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. And it means don't just be sitting around doing nothing, waiting to go to heaven, and just thinking all about the glories in heaven all the time when you've got a job here now, when God's got something for you here. And I understand that some people can be that way, but I don't really see that as being a major problem in the church. What I do see as being a bigger problem is the next point. That too many Christians get so earthly-minded that they're no heavenly good. We're so busy building our own kingdoms that we don't do anything about building gods. That we get so wrapped up in how this world operates and how we're treated in it that we lose sight of the fact that we belong to something better. And when we do that, when we get so wrapped up and, and offended with how this world operates, we allow bitterness and anger and resentment to take root in our hearts, getting upset about things that ultimately we don't belong to. That's why Paul wrote this in Colossians 1, 2 and 3. He said, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died. That part of you that belonged to the kingdoms of this world at one time is dead. 
Something that's dead (laughs) can't get offended about things not being unfair. Something that's dead doesn't go around getting its feelings hurt all the time. Something that's dead doesn't demand justice and fairness be done to it. If you have died in Christ, something better has been demanded for you. Something better than fairness and justice in this world. The resurrection of Jesus means that no matter what happens in this world, it's okay. Because I don't belong to this world. I may get treated unfair, but it's okay. I know somebody that did too. I'm in pretty good company here. I may be rejected by people, but that's okay. I may have injustice done to me. That's okay. I belong to something better. And what I have in Christ is so much better than anything that this world can offer. Something better than fairness. Something better than acceptance. Better than even physical health. Better than popularity and financial success. In Christ, I am forgiven, healed, saved, adopted, honored, set free, made new, made alive forevermore. And no matter what happens in this world, nothing can change that. One day, Jesus is coming back. And the Bible says that he's going to make the crooked places straight. He's going to bring the high places low. He's going to level the playing field and make everything fair. But until then, the unfairness of this world does not have the power to steal your joy unless you allow it to. You see, the Pharisees weren't using unfairness or they were using unfairness to to accomplish their will at least they thought they were they thought that they were using the unfairness of the world's kingdoms to accomplish their will but God was using the unfairness of the kingdom of this world to accomplish his will the world doesn't have power over God's kingdom the kingdom of God has power over all the kingdoms of this world and if unfairness and injustice is happening to you You can trust that if you belong to Christ, God is using it to accomplish His purposes in your life. Last point. You've heard me say this many times, but I really hope we get this. Being a Christian is not about heaven one day. It's about life right now. No matter what is going on around me, because Jesus lives and I live in Him, there is abundant joy that can't be affected by the circumstances around me or the unfairness that I may encounter in this world. Like that old hymn says, Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future. Life is worth the living. Why? Because he lives. Even in the injustice and unfairness and pain and rejection and heartache, it's all worth it because he lives and we belong to something better. Let's not get so wrapped up in the kingdoms of this world that we miss out on the joy of what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. Let's stop being so preoccupied with preserving our own kingdoms and take part in the privilege that we have been given of of building God's. 
The abundant life that Jesus said that he came to give is not found in any of the kingdoms of this world. It's found in Jesus. And we can experience that abundant life in this world because ultimately we are not of this world. We are of something better. He's alive. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that very same power has been made available to you. Let's be the people who are taking advantage of all that we have been given in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, what an awesome thought. God, that you have come and done for us what we could never do for ourselves. That you've given everything that God, we so didn't deserve. You gave all that we have no right to. It's only by your grace and mercy that you have allowed these things into our lives through your blood. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just open eyes right now to your truth. Lord, that people who haven't really yet seen you for who you truly are. Holy Spirit, would you open their eyes now? God, I pray for those in here who have been so wrapped up in in building and preserving their own kingdoms that they can't see your truth standing right in front of them. Lord, I pray that they would see it this morning. God, for those who are still only a part of the kingdoms of this world because they have not fully given their life to you. Lord, I pray that that changes this morning. Lord, that you would reach in and say their name the way that you said Mary's that made her recognize you. You said, Lord, in your word that those who are of the truth hear your voice. So, Lord, I pray that your voice will be heard in the remainder of this time this morning. God, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.